Okay. Um, you want to check and make sure my mic is on? We're good. All right. Good. Good. Uh, I'm going to add two announcements that he didn't talk about um, uh, because I wanted to talk about them. Um, okay. So the first one is, I'm just going to read this one out to you. Um, we are reaching out specifically to um, um, black and indigenous and people of color in our church, um, in our community, um, as elders, as a pastoral team, um, for several reasons. Honestly, the, the elders would like to invite you to discuss how we can improve um, the church and, and create a space that is more um, welcoming and loving and understanding of the people of color in our church, for, of your experience, of, um, of, of your views. Um, all of that is important to us. And so um, we want to sort of call you together and sort of have a, have a talk about this, like a very frank conversation. Um, speak to us about who we are, about what we're doing, about what we're doing right, maybe what we're doing wrong. Um, and if you haven't been in contact already with one of the elders, because we've been reaching out for the last few months, if you haven't been contacted by, by one of the elders already, um, or myself, to be a part of the discussion, I want you to email us at elders at watermarktampa.com. We, we can't always see everybody. We typically, um, back in January, BC, we had... Um, yeah, BC. We had uh, um, two services, and if everybody were to come together, like 700 people. So, like, we we can't always see everybody and know everybody in the room um, who uh, who understands the experience of being a minority in a in 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 America. So, um, if we haven't reached out to you, please reach out to us. First off, we apologize for not getting you, for not seeing you, and writing your name down. Um, but reach out to us because we want you to be a part of this uh, this conversation. And we're going to try arrange to arrange a meeting with all of us uh, in the next few weeks. Um, the second thing I want to announce is starting August 23rd at 11.45 a.m. right after the Sunday services. Um, and this is going to go every Sunday as long as we feel like it should go, as long as it's working out. 11.45, August 23rd. That's, I think, next week. Um, we're going to have an after party on Zoom with myself, with some of the elders, and and possibly staff, and all that, some of our leadership. And it's going to be sort of a time to discuss um, discuss the sermon, um, sort of the stuff that used to happen on Sunday mornings here in this space after we would meet. Um, and we want to talk to you. We want to hear from you. We want to see how you're doing. Um, and uh, this will just, it's, it's not like a, a formal... Q&A time, like a reasoning series or anything like that. It's honestly just, we want to hear what's going on in your life. We want to hear prayer requests. We want to talk about the sermon. Like if you have questions about the things we just taught, um, bring them up and let's talk about them. Um, and so just basically reconnect and and form, like re-solidify those bonds of community, uh, generally building community. It's a community building exercise. We'll do trust falls, you by yourself in your house. Um, and it'll, uh, it'll be great. So those are the two announcements that I had. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into this passage today. We're talking about change. Um, and uh, I'm just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, thank you um, for every single person who has stumbled upon this service or who has purposely clicked play on the video or even who is in this room tonight. Um, I lift each and every one of them up to you. We are your brothers. Uh, we are brothers and sisters of each other. We are your children. We um, look to you for our for our purpose, for our example. You, Jesus Christ, show us what it what it means to be a true human in this world. And so, this is us attempting to crawl collectively, communally towards you for the salvation of our souls, of our community, of of our city, for the for the. Uh, 
with, a, with the hope that, that you will become our communal Lord and Savior of our world. Um, and so right now, as we open up this text, and as we, for the, really for the fourth time, look at this story of Peter and Cornelius, this pivotal moment in the church, I pray that you would be in this, that you would meet us here in this, um, that we would hear from you, that I would hear from you, that we all collectively and individually would hear from you and use these moments to, uh, to bind us together. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. Uh, so change. Peter has changed his mind. Peter was one way. Peter had an experience, and he has changed his mind now. When you change your mind, it causes problems. Uh, you have to deal with consequences. This sermon is going to piggyback off a sermon, maybe it was two, maybe three weeks ago, that I preached called The Cave, where I talked about what it looks like when you leave the cave and you realize that the things you've been doing in the church are shadows of a real thing that God wants us to do in the world. Um, that it speaks of a future world that God is building. Um, and when you go back into the cave and you, Aristotle's cave or Plato's cave, and you walk back into the, play, into the, the cave and you tell people, I have seen the actual images of the shadows that you have seen, they get really mad, okay? So here's what, this is Peter coming back to Jerusalem after going and staying in the house and eating food with these, uh, with these Gentiles, something that was forbidden that you were not allowed to do. Um, and so I wanted to start off this morning by sort of saying this. Um, I had an experience not too long ago where I read a book out of nowhere. It's not a new book. It's an old book. I'm not even going to tell you the title of it. Um, uh, I read this book, and I remember when I was back in college, let's date myself, uh, nine, 98, I graduated from high school. So 90, between 99 and 2001, I had um, thoughts about this book. I believed that this book was wrong, that it was evil, that it was heresy, that the author was a heretic. Um, I had a, oops, I had a, a pretty narrow view of Christianity at the time. Um, and I believed that everything that this guy stood for and did was wrong and terrible. Um, and then earlier this year, I read that book and I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the author. I loved the writing style. Um, I, upon reading the same book, Again, I was struck by how much of it I not only understood to be right, but understood to be the direct teachings of Jesus. And this shocked me um, because it's not very often in life that you experience this. Once in a while you do though. And I had this experience and it does a couple things to you. The first thing it does uh, is it's, it humbles you as it pertains to who you were in your younger years. I've always said I'm perpetually and should be perpetually looking back on myself five years earlier and saying, well, what an ignorant, what an ignorant Tommy that was. Um, and hopefully I'm growing and, uh, and, and awakening to um, who God is more and more and more and studying and learning more. Um, so the first thing it does is it humbles you. It humbled me as it pertains to who you were when you were young. And I think about some of the things I said in public and I cringe. Um, and the second thing that it does is it causes you to inspect your own current life now um, to wonder, is this journey over? Is God still moving me? Are there things now that I don't like that down in the future I will read and absolutely love and, and get a kick out of? Um, probably. Um, this is how it works. This is growth. So Peter has this experience and he changes his mind. He believes suddenly that the Gentiles should be brought into the church. He suddenly believes that they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to convert to Judaism. 
They can just become followers of Jesus and, and worship with the Gentiles. And so he returns to Jerusalem and he gets there and his people are there waiting for him and his people have some harsh words for him. The good news of the inclusion of Gentiles has reached Jerusalem already and he gets there and the good news um, has not been received as good news by his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, by the Jewish followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And growth and change is oftentimes um, not viewed as good news by people who haven't undergone, this, undergone the same growth as you have. It's often received as bad news uh, for them. This is the trouble that comes with, with what we've been talking about, transgressing, transgressing cultures and theological boundaries. When you follow Jesus, you will end up transgressing cultural boundaries. And when you do, you will get pushback, no matter how Christ-like it is, no matter how much Jesus actually modeled it. Um, especially those boundaries that people claim are divinely ordained, okay? And this is what this is. He has broken not just, not just a cultural boundary, but a, a boundary that is divinely set up, that God commanded, and he's broken it. And so these Jewish Christians come to him and they're upset. And they approach him and he, and he steps into a lot of thick criticism growing out of, growing out of like really one massive question. And the question is this, why did you share an intimate space with uncircumcised Gentiles? Why? Why were you there? We are here, you are there. Why are you there? Um, that is not where we go. That is not where God's people go. That is not what God's people do. We are here, but you are there. And the question they have is, why? And Peter's answer is interesting. Um, it is there at Peter's answer um, that when we're in a situation like this, we find oftentimes that we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do. But Peter, it's almost like he knew exactly what to do. He didn't argue. He didn't defend himself. Peter stops and he tells the story verbatim of what happened. He simply gives voice to the experience. He wants them to go on the journey that he's been on. And people cannot understand where you are unless they have been on your journey. And this is something everyone needs to understand. Oftentimes the reason people aren't growing with you is because they have not had the journey you had. Oftentimes the people, the reason people are on the other side of an issue from you is because they have been on a different journey. Possibly it is, it is entirely possible that someone on the other side of an issue has had an experience that was incredibly negative with someone on your side of an issue. And it was that experience that they had that puts them over there. And so they, they conjure up a lot of arguments to defend themselves in their position. But the real reason they're in that position is because of a story, something that happened to them. And so this is what Peter gets at. Peter has a story that he wants to tell. Um, missionaries understand this. Missionaries understand uh, also people raising money for aid relief and all kinds of stuff. Um, they understand that when you, when you paint a vast picture of the world, it doesn't make a big impact. When you tell somebody that 150,000 people have died of a virus, they can go back and forth and argue unemotionally. But when you come to them and you say, this family member of mine just died of this virus, and here's how it happened. Here's how it went. Here's what it looked like. Here's what they felt. That will change people. When you go and you talk about there are hundreds of thousands of people in one city starving to death, you hear that 
And your natural inclination is to say, well, of course, there's people all over the world that are starving to death right now, that have diseases, that have all kinds of problems. And so the solution is never, is never just stats flying over, looking down from 30,000 feet. The solution, and Peter understands this, and a lot of missionaries understand this, the solution is the single story of the single person, the singular life, what they felt, what it was like, what they said, what they experienced, what they saw, and what they heard. It is a thousand times more effective than saying a million people in that city die a year from starvation. Rather, when you zoom in on one person, yes, that is a way bigger problem than the one person. But we don't receive that. What we receive is the one person, the story, um, the single story of the little girl, the little boy, their name, their face, their story. That, that moves people. It, it triggers something in our mind to where we feel the pain of this person because it's one person. We can help one person. We can understand one person. And so Peter tells his story. By the way, this is why to this day, I believe the most effective way to bring people into the church is to tell them the story of Jesus. Um, it's, not, it's not theological argument. It's not through scaring them um, into believing something terrible is waiting for them. It is not in um, apologetics and trying to argue that there is a God and then trying to convince them that this God is Jesus. The simple, complete story of Jesus told well is the most moving thing that you could hear anywhere. And every time you tell it, it changes you more and more and more. It has the ability to take somebody at the top of society, the most powerful person who doesn't care about anyone else, it, the understanding and hearing the full story of Jesus has the power to dismantle some of that. And then they hear it again and it dismantles a little more. You hear it again, it dismantles a little more. The repetitive over and over again, completely well thought out, contextually understood story of Jesus is the most important thing that you could tell to anybody. Uh, this is what the church in Acts was doing. The church in Acts was not running around doing theological arguments and scaring people into praying a prayer to be saved from hell. They don't even mention any of that. They tell people about Jesus and they tell them what it meant for them and what it means for them themselves. Um, Peter didn't argue at all. I think a lot of commentator, commentators on this text, a lot of pastors in this text tend to read past what is honestly the most surprising detail is that Peter... I mean, he's well-versed in the Old Testament. He could have easily just started pulling out Isaiah, all, point to all the places where um, Elijah and Elisha, where, where the, all the places where God points that one day the door will be kicked open and the Gentiles will be brought in, that, the, that God's people will be inclusive, not exclusive. But he didn't do any of that. He told the story, his experience. I was with Christ um, for this many years. I understand Christ. Uh, and then when he tells the story of the, uh, I, I, was, I was praying, God appeared to me. I went and he explains in great detail for the third time now um, what these Gentiles look like, how they responded, what happened, the spirit of God falling, the emotion in the room, the whole thing. He explains the whole thing. Um, he talks about his experience. There's no Bible verse to fall back on. There's no theological arguments. The only P argument that Peter could give uh, with his, his community's eyes bearing down upon him was, was no argument at all, simply the story of how he moved from A to B to C to D and why he now stands before them a totally different person. There was a journey. Let me tell you about it. Um, and it's an experience. And I know a lot of us, a lot of times we have a hard time 
when people talk about, I changed my mind based upon an experience. I changed my mind about God based upon an experience. And that We look at that and we say, that is wildly dangerous um, because for the last several hundred years, um, experience has gotten a really bad rap because of all the people who claim to be followers of Christ who have used experience to sort of grace, greed, and violence and oppression with sort of like a halo of righteousness above it. And to say, my experience tells me this. And, and then they use their experience to take advantage of people. But they know Peter. Peter's story is sincere. Um, Peter's story is not self-serving. It's rooted in absolute sincerity. His, his hearers know him. He was there when they became followers of Jesus. He taught them what they know. And when people know you, when people really, really know you, they have, they have a lot more tolerance for any words that you have that veer from a path that, that they are comfortable with. That is why if you really wanna change somebody, you must remain intimate with them. You must stay close to them. You must stay in relationship with them. You must walk with them for a long time so that they know that you love them and that you are on the journey with them before you attempt to sort of veer them down the path, down a different path from, from the things that you see are destructive. They must trust you. And there's another thing, there's this, what, what I'm gonna call the familial, the familial gaze, right? The familial gaze, it's, it's, it's powerful. I'm, and I mean the, the look, the, the gathering of everyone that you know, your brothers and sisters, your, your uh, not, and I don't just mean maternal brothers and sisters, I, I, I mean um, your community with their eyes upon you. They can keep you in bondage. They can keep you from growing. They can keep you from changing. They can keep you um, in line, which might actually be out of line with the things of God. And the charges against Peter when he got back to Jerusalem were incredibly serious. And his defense, Peter's defense was vital um, for clearing the air and establishing this new position from which they could all sort of move forward and allow Gentiles into the church. So um, we see this in Acts 11, uh, verse four and verse 18. Peter replies to them and he tells them the whole story. Look how it goes. It starts off in verse four, starting from the very beginning, Peter told them the whole story. And then when you get to the end of it, we see verse 18, it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They hear a story and they receive it and they love him and they trust him and they move towards it. We, most of us have a natural defense mechanism. Um, and I see this a lot uh, in myself. I see it in other people. We have this natural defense mechanism that when people change and they present us with some information that we're uncomfortable with, our first inclination um, is to say, well, they're stupid, they're evil, they're ignorant, but that's not what Peter does. They come at him with accusation, with negative thoughts, bad thoughts about him. And he doesn't defend himself. He just reveals himself. He says, I see things differently, not because I'm smarter than you, more loving than you, but because the grace of God and the spirit has seen fit to take me on a journey that has changed my mind. And so what is it? It is a sincerity with which he stands before them and presents all of this. I'm gonna pause that for a second. I'm gonna talk about Greek sculptures for a minute because, um, there's some words in here that the way that they thought about things that, that directly connects with this. So the ancient Romans um, used to prize these, these Greek sculpture, sculptures for their in, incredible skill um, that the ancient Greeks had in carving these statues that somehow from a block of rock, you could create 
what looks like an actual human being standing there. We're very used to seeing statues everywhere. Imagine in the ancient world, when somebody takes a rock and turns it into the exact image, height, depth, dimension, and this stunning realism of this rock that looks like a human being. And it was shocking and it was stunning. Well, sometime um, a couple years after sort of, sort of most of these Greek sculptures were made, after Rome had conquered Greece, um, uh, the, 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 the Greek statues came into style and people started collecting them again. Um, and by this time, most of these statues were already several centuries old. And a lot of them, when you look closely at them, they had these, these gaps and these chips and these holes and these pieces missing because they had been around a really long time. They'd been knocked over, moved around, ransacked by their own people, the Romans, when they charged in and took over. And so... That dropped the value of these things. And these, these sculptures were, were skyrocketing in value. And so some of the vendors on the street that were collecting these things, having them shipped in and selling them in the Agora, the marketplace, uh, they figured something out. They figured out that they could take wax and that they could rub it into the statues. They could melt it and pour it into the cracks and they could rub it smooth. And what would happen is you would, uh, as you're shopping for these things, you would see this pristine, perfect statue that you love that was like, wow, this thing is perfect and it survived for, for an, an incredibly long amount of time. And you would, they could sell it to you for a lot of money because it looks pristine. But then you get it home and after a few months, maybe a couple of years, the wax starts to turn different colors and it cracks and it begins to dry and fall out. And you realize you've been had, you've been swindled, that this was not a perfect statue. This is, this is a chip statue in my perfect Roman whatever household. Um, and... So the legit vendors on the street that were selling actual pristine statues, they started putting up signs. Sign, which means without, Sarah, which means wax. So they would put these signs that say sign, Sarah, um, without wax. This one has no imperfections. It has not been filled. It has not been covered up. We're not trying to hide anything from you. This statue is without wax. It is signed Sarah. This is where we get our word uh, for sincere. This is what sincere sort of refers to. It is without wax. It is, um, it is, it is, it is used all through the scriptures. Let me show you uh, one of these verses here. The early Christians, when they're gathering in Acts chapter two, what does it say? It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Sincere. The reason this word is used, I mean, what's there in the Greek is not sincera. It's a different word, but, but the word that is there, it means, it literally translates to one thing and simplicity. One thing. It's the same idea. And so we translated this to sincera, to without wax, sincere, something we understand. And so the early church was all about being one whole thing. Um, without wax. When all of it is stripped away, when you can see that the cracks, they might be there, but they're not filled with, with, with malice and hate and partisanship and, and tribalism and judgmentalism. Um, and there's this general understanding that like the view that we are going to have of each other in the church is going to be based not upon a falseness, not upon things that we've added to it, um, that it's going to be based on what actually is. It's going to be based upon the reality of who this person is, where they've come from, what they've been through. And it requires intimacy. It requires knowing each other. Um, we must learn. Like often that we, when somebody walks into the church and does what Peter did and we're uncomfortable with it, 
as they were. They had to figure out how, and it says, as it says in Acts 2 that they did, they had to figure out how to put away all their malice, all their judgmentalism, all their things that they wanted to push upon him. And they had to find out how to put all that away and look at him for what he really was, one thing, a singular thing. He was a man who loved them. He was a man who brought them to Christ. He was a man who, who, who desperately loved God, cared about the teachings of Christ and moving things forward. And even though their first inclination might've been to think terrible things about them, as it often is, how tempting is it when you hear a piece of gossip about somebody to just grab it and say, ooh, tell me more. And to think the worst of somebody because they're on the other side of an aisle because they, they voted from some certain way because they come from some certain place because they, whatever, because they have some theological background. How tempting is it to just pin all of our, all of our stuff on them and to cover them in it? It's so easy to do that, but it's so difficult to strip all that away and accept that person for exactly what they are. They are them, they have a journey, they have a story, sit, grow in intimacy and learn. Also, we must learn to trust God with each other. We are so tempted to cast people out when they change their mind about something. I have learned over the years, trust God with people. I have seen, I have seen friends walk away from God and I've seen those same friends come back. I've seen friends deconstruct everything and I've seen friends reconstruct everything. I have friends that have deconstructed and not reconstructed. I have a lot of faith that one day they will, that they'll be back. I've learned to trust God with people. Let them be them, let God walk with them and me be me, love them with everything that I have. I've also learned that I must learn to trust other people with God. Don't assume because someone has come to a different conclusion about some theological issue than me, that they're doing it wrong. I, 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 we like to assume that people are purposely interpreting the Bible to fit their agenda. And oftentimes they are, but you have no way of knowing that. And so do your best to trust people with God in the same way that you can trust God with people. Sometimes we must explain ourselves to other people. Sometimes we must. Um, all of these ideas are important because sometimes we must explain ourselves. Uh, it's an important task in all generations. You know why? Because, because God is constantly doing new things. Always has been, always will be. And as God is doing new things, you may be called upon at different times in your life to go back to the previous generation and explain what it is that you think God is doing, what you have discerned that the spirit of God is leading you to do. And it's difficult, but we must do it sincerely. Without wax, we must not coat anything. We must not be false and fake. We must tell the story. We must, uh, we don't have to be in anyone's faces. We don't have to be offensive. We don't have to be outraged. We can just be sincere. Drop the defenses and say, I love God and I love you. This is what God is calling me to. I, I know you might not be able to come with me, but I hope you can understand. And I hope that you can trust me with God and trust God with me. Um, and this brings me to the idea that your story, whatever it is, has to be all about Jesus. It cannot be about you. Um, we must tell the story of Jesus as the story that we are attempting to live out. There is no other story for your life, for you to be living. Um, and when we tell our story, it should parallel like a railroad track with the story of Jesus. That is what will make it um, easier to accept and confirm. 
is what you're doing, can I look at your life and what you're doing and can I read the story of Christ and can I see you two on the same trajectory of bringing in the outsider, drawing them close, of making the enemy your brother and your sister, of creating evenness where there is unevenness, of speaking truth to power, of pouring yourself out for others. Or when I look at your journey, do I see the opposite of, of many of these things? And here's the problem. When people see the opposite of these things, we end up with, with what I want to call a mixed medium. Jesus can become a mixed medium, not just, not fully in your life. Jesus can become not one full piece of granite, all pieced together, one piece of, 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 of marble. There are plenty of ways that Jesus can become this sort of mixed, um, mixed medium in, in the insincere heart of a Christian. I want to talk about two of those specifically. I, there's a lot more. I, I only have time for two of them this morning. Um, so let's talk about two of these. How, can, how, how Jesus can become a mixed medium. The first one I want to point out to you, how Jesus can become a mixed medium in your life is, uh, is by mixing the ideas of the empire with the words of Jesus. This is probably in our country the most prevalent way that Jesus becomes a mixed medium, that Jesus becomes a mixture of the God-man and the nation-building empire smashed together into one thing that somehow what God is doing is America. Um, <clears throat> for those of us who have been discipled and raised and discipled heavily and immersed in the ways of America, Christianity can become either conservative or liberal politics of an empire mixed with the words of Jesus that undergird sort of the conclusions we've already come to. And it's not just one side that does this. We have these conclusions about how things should end. And what we do is we search the scriptures to find the verses that back us up and we ignore the others. Um, this creates cracks in your theological constructs that you have made. This creates a mixed medium out of Jesus. Um, the cracks are the places where we must explain away how, well, that's not what Jesus meant when he said that. When, when you believe something, but it appears to say that Jesus says exactly the opposite, and so you have a crack in your statue. And so what you say is, well, that's not, you, you get out the wax. That's not what Jesus meant though when he said that. And you try your best to explain it away in some other fashion. But these cracks have to be filled. And so we skip around the text in the Bible and we avoid the pieces that don't fit and we accept only the ones that do. This is not a sincere faith. What we do is we take maybe a Jesus that is carrying a cross that says, um, I will bring salvation and peace to the world by allowing my body to be broken and poured out. And instead, what we do is what we have often done throughout Christendom is when we take the cross and we flip it upside down and we make it a sword and suddenly we have a Jesus um, who is bringing power and justice and right and, and who, believes, who, who we believe will bring peace in the world through superior power and violence and military might, through a stronger nation, um, a more robust way of functioning in law enforcement. And we think that somehow this was Jesus' idea. That is a mixed medium. Jesus' idea was vastly different and deep down we all know it. We know it doesn't fit. Um, it's an insincere faith. It's a compromised faith. It's a very brittle faith. And it's one that will not stand the test of time. 
Most of my friends that were raised this way are no longer followers of Christ. Not because of Christ, but because of the mixed medium statue that they were given. And so what else? What else? How, how, Jesus, how else can Jesus become a mixed medium? Well, by putting Jesus alongside of all the other voices telling us about God in the Bible instead of reading them through Jesus. And, and here is what I mean. Stick figure time. Um, we have all these voices in the Bible, 66 books, hundreds of authors, all saying various things about God. And what we do is we line them all up and we go through the Bible and we try to take everyone's ideas and you take them all collectively together and you form your view of God. And Jesus is one of them in the lineup. Jesus is one of the voices in the Bible that are equal with all the other voices. You have Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and you have Jesus and then you have Paul, you have Matthew. Um, you have all the different voices in John and, and Solomon and David. And Jesus becomes one of the equal voices in the scripture, in the text. And so what you do is you scan the whole thing and you try to come up with a picture of God that includes all of them. And what happens is you realize pretty quickly that the God of the Old Testament is depicted differently than the God is in the New Testament. And the way you solve this is you create doctrines and theologies that say, well, God functioned one way then, and then he changed and functioned this way, and then he changed and functioned this way. Um, and so God decided to end his use of violence, but then later on in the book of Revelation, it will come up again. And, and dispensationalism and all kinds of things. And so we come up with all these ways of, of trying to take all the different voices in the text and put them all together and trying to make sense of that. But the problem is, this is not how the apostles understood the text. This is not how Paul, this is not how the early church fathers understood the text. What the early church fathers understood and what we need to understand once again is that Jesus is, as John says, the word of God. That the voice of Jesus is above all the other voices in the text and that all the other voices in the text need to be read actually through Jesus. We must realize that as the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoke through fag fragments and fashions. That's my translation. Um, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, read it. Um, he spoke in all these various different ways, but now he has spoken fully and completely through Jesus. And then John says, Jesus is the full word of God, the whole thing. And so if we want to read these other people, we first read Jesus and we understand Jesus and we read them through Christ, understanding that there are things that they did not know yet. God had not been fully revealed. And so you have bits and pieces and each one has a little bit of it, but each one might actually also have other ideas that are forced upon them by their local cultures that God is slowly ridding them of, that God is through a process revealing himself. To, and, and there's one day where it all becomes crystal clear that this is who God is. God is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is not a voice in the word of God alongside all of the other voices. He is the peak of the whole thing. He is the full story, the final story, the word of God. And it is the story of Jesus that strips away all the other stories that we have mixed Jesus' story with. Because what we like to do is we like to um, silence Jesus. When Jesus, when we have this statue that we kind of have to break a little bit and bend this way, we have to fill that crack. So what do we do to silence Jesus' clear words on certain things? We, we grab from the Old Testament, and we use the Old Testament to silence Jesus. 
and say, this is permitted way back here in Ecclesiastes. This is permitted here. This is permitted there. This is permitted there. And we use the Old Testament and Tertullian points this out clearly to silence Jesus so that we can really just do what we want because we have a mixed medium Jesus. We have a mixed medium Jesus that really is this conglomeration of the things that we, the ways we want the world to be, the things that, that we want to see God as. And a lot of it looks just like us in our views and the ways that we were raised. And so we take our preconceived ideas, whatever it is, right, left, progressive, conservative, fundamentalist on either side, and you bring Jesus and you put Jesus in this thing and you say, look at all the ways Jesus fits my mold. In order to do this, you have to use different parts of the scriptures to silence the clear teaching of Jesus on various structural theological issues. And we do this constantly because we have such a hard time being one thing because the familial gaze is constantly bearing down upon us, telling us you better live up to my standards or you are out. And the church guys, was never supposed to function this way. The church was never supposed to be coercive. The church is here to be the presence of Christ, to bring people in, to teach them constantly about the ways of Christ, to live in the way of Christ as a way of, of being an example for them, inviting them into these things, not demanding, but inviting, and watching the Spirit do His work. Jesus changes our view of God. This is what Jesus does. This is what the moment Jesus came, it changed our view of God. Whatever we had read in the Old Testament from the law and the prophets, once Jesus showed up, all of that changed. And we now fully understand. That's why like Matthew has Jesus constantly saying, you have heard it said this, but I say this. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's not saying like, you may have heard it said on the street by your friend Kyle. He's literally saying, you have heard it said by Moses, this, but I say this. Jesus changes our view of God and reveals that God is like Jesus. We prefer to say Jesus is like God because we have a preconceived notion of what God is like. And if we can squeeze Jesus into that God, then it's easy to say Jesus is God, but it's a lot harder. It's easier to say Jesus is like God, but it's a lot harder to say God is like Jesus. But that is what we should be saying. This is what we have been given. And so when we read Paul and we read Paul sort of appearing um, to put various people in their place and to silence women and all this stuff, you have to read Paul through the light of Jesus. Jesus is elevated above all else. You must understand that somehow the teachings of Paul must submit to the words and the life of Christ, not cancel them out. The words of Paul never cancel out the words of Christ. They must be read through him. Paul's words about women in the church must be read in the light of Christ, who intends to make men and women equal in the church, which the Spirit accomplished at Pentecost and has made obvious to us. Um, by the way, church denominations that that really focus on, on, on the Pentecosts, on, on the charismatic gifts, the holiness movements. That's why the vast majority of them are egalitarian and allow women pastors. But the ones that are founded mostly on the teachings of Paul and, and Reformation teaching are complementarian and do not allow women to be teachers. I would argue it's because they are reading um, Jesus through the lens of Paul. Um, and so, we must conclude that whatever Paul is doing, it is leading to what Jesus is doing.
and there's a reason for it, and that's what we must study, right? So Jesus changes, not only does Jesus change our mind, Jesus changed Peter's mind, and this is that moment. This brings us all the way back to our passage. Jesus changed Peter's mind here. Peter's faced with this command to, to do something that he knew didn't line up with the God of the Old Testament that he thought he understood, but Jesus is here telling him like, no, this is, this is what God wants. This is what God is doing. And you can see it in the life of Christ. And he says as much, look at this. Look at uh, 11, 16 through, through, through 18. It says, then I remembered what the Lord had said. Because remember, Peter had spent three years with Jesus. The memories of everything that Jesus was are, are flowing through his mind into his soul constantly. And everything that the apostles are doing, we must understand that they learned this from the time that they spent living with Christ. He says, I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so if, if God gave them the same spirit that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Jesus is the argument. Jesus is the story. Jesus is the way forward. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Jesus does not need to be added to. He does not need to be taken away from. If the words in the life of Jesus rub against your worldview, that is a crack that needs to be repaired, not waxed over. You must learn to be sincere about these things. We must not begin to cover these things up. So this is what I want to focus on as we move into communion. Um, there are two elements in communion. Let me come over here and grab these. I'll be right back. There is there's wine and there's bread. This is the last thing that Jesus did before he was dragged off. Just to try it. Have, uh, we have wine and we have bread which symbolizes the body of Christ. The body of Christ has been broken for us. The body of Christ, uh, the blood of Christ poured out for us. This is how, as Jesus has shown us, salvation enters into the world. This is how. Through the body of Christ doing this, it is no accident that he has called his church the body of Christ, broken and poured out for us, uh, for, for the world. And so the body of Christ broken for you body of Christ poured out for you. And so let's end today. We'll have more collect prayers coming. I wanted to take a few weeks um, and uh, after communion do uh, this, uh, the Lord's Prayer bit. So do this Lord's Prayer with me. That's the last thing we do. Oh, did I forget to hit that? There we go. All right, here we go. So pray the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for what you were doing in our hearts and our lives. Guide us in the next few months to fashion our lives around you and change how we do everything. God, 
Guide us forward. Continue to be present with us wherever we are. Change our lives. Change how we view God entirely. When we think of God, let us think of Jesus. Of you. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Grace and peace, everyone.